Welcome to the Whitefields Community Church Podcast. For more information about our church, including location and service times, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. If you are blessed by this message, please consider sharing it with others and leaving a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. Today's message comes from our series, Grace and Truth, a study of the book 1 Corinthians. Here's Pastor Nick. Please open with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. What we like to do here at Whitefields, we like to study through books of the Bible. So we'll take a book of the Bible. We'll start in chapter 1. We'll work our way all the way through to the end. It's a great way for us to hear God speak to us through his word, kind of on his terms, right? So we get each section in its own context, in the context of the whole book. And so we study through books of the Bible. Right now we're studying through the book of 1 Corinthians, which is Paul's, the apostle's letter, first letter to the church in the Greek city of Corinth. So please open in your Bibles. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is where we are at this morning as, our, as we journey through this book and our study called Grace and Truth. Lord, as we open your word, we come and we ask that you'd speak to us. Lord, you know uh, what we need as we've come here this morning. Lord, some of us need encouragement. Some of us need to be exhorted or, or challenged. And so, Lord, we ask that you'd meet us in this place. Help us to understand this passage. Help us to apply it to our lives, that we might honor you and serve others like Jesus has served us. So, Lord, we pray that you would bless our study of your word this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was a missionary in Hungary, one of, my, uh, one of the ministries that my wife Rosemary and I were involved in was a ministry to refugees. So this was, this was in the years just immediately following 9-11. And in the city that we lived in, in Hungary, there was a refugee camp that was run by the United Nations, and it was in this abandoned Russian military base. So, you know, the Russians had occupied Hungary, and then when they left in 1990, uh, all these military bases were, were just left abandoned. And so in the one that was on the edge of our city, they started a United Nations uh, High Commission for Refugees, a refugee camp there. And they housed about 2,000 refugees, mostly from Afghanistan, Iran, and Iraq, because of what was happening in the world at that time. And so Rosemary and I would go, and we would visit this camp, and we would bring humanitarian aid, and we'd also bring Bibles. Because for many of these people, this was the first time in their lives that they were free to read the Bible and to hear about Jesus and to consider the gospel. And it was, a, it was an amazing time of ministry. And we saw many people come to faith in Jesus during this time in this, this refugee camp over just a couple of years. And most of these people in the camp, of course, were Muslims because of the countries that they came from. And as you might know, you know, for Muslims, modesty is like a really big deal. So they're really into modesty. And that's why Muslim women will cover their heads with scarves, they call a hijab, when they're in public. It's a sign of modesty. And so some very conservative Muslims go even further than that with, with efforts to be modest. So one time we were uh, with a group of Americans who had come to work with us there in Hungary. And uh, the leader of this group was this man named Larry. Now, Larry was a great guy. He had a heart of gold, and he had a huge heart for refugees in particular. He had been, they had been praying for our ministry to the refugees. And so when he was in town, he said, hey, I'd love it if you could take me and I could visit this refugee camp and meet some of the people. So we said, okay, let's go. So we take him out, and we're, we're going door to door, meeting some people, talking to people. And we get invited into this one guy's room. Now, this guy's from Afghanistan. So we're sitting in his room, which is a pretty large room that he was in, and it was divided in half by kind of like curtains made of sheets that were kind of strung across the room, dividing it in half. 
And so this man, we're sitting there at a table. He's giving us some food, and we're talking. And so Larry, he asked this man, you know, hey, so do you have a family? Tell me about your family. And the man says, yeah, I'm married. I have a wife. And Larry says, really? Where's your wife? He, he's assuming that this man's wife is back in Afghanistan. And the man says, no, she's right here. And Larry's like, what do you mean she's right here? He's like, she's on the other side of the curtain. And, and Larry's like, what? Well, tell her to get out here, right? Come hang out with us. And the man's like, no, no, no. You don't understand, right? I can't do that. You're a man, and in our culture, we're very modest. It would be totally improper for her to come out here and sit with a stranger who's a man. And Larry's like, what? Like, this is nonsense, right? Just bring her out here, man. And the guy's like, no, no, we don't do that. So Larry stands up, pulls back the curtain, and he's like, there she is, right? He like points at her. There she is. And she was there. She was right there, right? And so what does Larry do? He goes over and grabs this man's wife and gives her a big hug. Now, Larry thought that he was being nice. Let's just put it this way. I thought we were going to have to call an ambulance, right? Because this guy was about to have a heart attack. His wife was about to have a heart attack. This is like their worst nightmare, the last thing they ever wanted to happen in their lives. Some strange man pulls back the curtain, right, and like grabs her and just like squeezes her against his body, right? Larry's like, this is a hug. This is how you say hi. And they're like, this is like horrific, right? Like, this is scandalous. Like, this is, the, this is the worst thing that could happen because in their culture, a hug meant something different than a hug means in our culture, right? Uh, it meant something very different. They weren't honored by it at all. In fact, just the opposite. Well, listen, in the city of Corinth, as Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthians, they also had certain cultural practices in their day and age and in their place. Um, but some of the Corinthian Christians, in their worship, in the church, they were doing things and acting in ways that in that culture were very dishonoring to others. And um, unlike our friend Larry, right, who, who didn't realize that he was being dishonoring and offensive, the thing is that the Christians in Corinth, they knew that what they were doing was considered disrespectful in their culture, but they just didn't care. They were like, we're doing it anyway because we want to. And so they were only thinking about themselves. So here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul is going to address these issues. And even though, you know, we in our day and age, we have different issues in our culture, what you're going to see is that there are some really applicable principles at work here that we can absolutely apply to our lives here and now today. So the, the title of today's message is Honoring God by honoring each other. And what we're going to see in our passage, kind of our summary statement that sums up the message, the point of this passage, but also is our outline for studying today, is this. Self-centeredness leads us to dishonor God and others, but following in the way of Jesus leads us to honor God and consider the needs of others instead of merely indulging ourselves. So I encourage you, write that sentence down. We'll have it up on the screen throughout the message. But also maybe take a picture of it, whatever you got to do to take this thought with you, because this is what 1 Corinthians 11 is all about. So we're going to take that sentence, we're going to break it down, and we're going to use that sentence as our outline for studying the message today. So let's begin by looking at that first part. Self-centeredness leads us to dishonor God and others. Chapter 11 begins with Paul saying this, Be imitators of me, even as I imitate Christ, as I am of Christ. So Paul is inviting the Corinthian Christians to follow his example. 
right? To follow him in his actions and his attitudes because Paul was seeking to follow the example of Jesus in everything he did. Now, this is the same thing that Paul told his young protege, Timothy, a young a pastor. He told him this, be an example to believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Be an example, he said. You know, oftentimes it's easier for us to tell people, hey, don't look at me, look at Jesus, right? Don't look at me. I'll disappoint you. I'm going to mess up. But Jesus, right, he, he won't disappoint you. He won't mess up. And in one sense, that's true, right? Don't look at me. Look at Jesus. He, he's the one who's, who you really need. He's the one who can really help you, not me. But on the other hand, let me say this. Don't we need more people who can say, like the Apostle Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ, right? Don't we need more people who are willing to take others by the hand and say, come along with me. I'll show you what it looks like to follow Jesus in the world today. So Paul invites the Corinthians to follow his example as he seeks to imitate Christ. Here in chapter 11, what's going to happen is for the rest of this chapter, Paul is now going to address two particular situations in which the Corinthians were not imitating Jesus. And Paul is going to instruct them about what it would look like for them to imitate Jesus in those situations. What Paul's going to show them is that to walk in the way of Jesus is to honor God and to consider the needs of others rather than just indulging ourselves. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul talks about this, right? He talks about this, and here's what he says there in Philippians chapter 2. Paul says this, even though Jesus is God, Jesus submitted himself to the Father. Now think about that. Jesus is God, just as the Father is God, and yet Jesus submitted himself to the will of the Father. That's really interesting. That gets to a really important doctrine for us as Christians, which we call the doctrine of the Trinity. Maybe you've heard of it. It means that God is a triune God, a Trinity. Let me, let me explain. The Bible teaches this, that there is one God who eternally exists in three distinct and co-equal persons, right? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father is God, the Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. They are all equally God, and yet they are also unique. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. The Holy Spirit is not the Father nor the Son. And in the Trinity, these three persons, even though they are equally God, they have different roles that they play in God's work in the world. So, for example, we're told in the Bible that the Father sent the Son, to the world on a mission to save us through his actions. And the Son obeyed and submitted to the Father. It says this in Philippians chapter 2, that even though Jesus was equal to the Father, he submitted himself to the Father. And he obeyed the Father even to the point of death on the cross. And then it says this, that because Jesus did that, to follow Jesus means to imitate him by doing this, by taking on his same attitude and his same, same mindset, the same mindset and attitude that Jesus had, which means this, Paul tells us, Philippians chapter 2. He says, do nothing, therefore, here's what it means to follow Jesus, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. In other words, 
To imitate Jesus means to surrender your life to the will and calling of God. And it also means to consider how you can serve others rather than indulging yourself. And so here's what's going to happen for the rest of this chapter. Paul is going to give us two case studies, two case studies from the church in Corinth, which highlight ways in which the Corinthians needed to grow in imitating Jesus. Now, these are areas in which they were not honoring others and they were not honoring God. The first of these case studies dealt with the wearing of head coverings in the church. The second case study had to do with the particular way that the Corinthians were taking communion or the Lord's Supper. And now as we look at these, these particular issues, you might say, well, that's, that's not something that, that I even deal with in my life. Well, listen, I want to challenge you, though, that there are probably areas of your life where you can afford to grow in imitating Jesus. Maybe there are areas in your life where you, are, you have been self-centered, and God's calling you to be focused on honoring God and serving others. You know, we live in an extremely self-focused society, perhaps the most self-focused society that's ever existed in the history of the world. That's where we live. So it is very relevant and very important for us to hear this message because it's so easy for me and for you to become obsessed, right? To be obsessed with myself, to be obsessed with my needs, my wants, my desires. But I need to be reminded that to follow in the way of Jesus means I don't only live for myself. In Christ, God has given me a hope that goes beyond this life, and he's given me a calling that is higher than just living for myself. So to follow Jesus means to honor God just as Jesus the Son submitted to God the Father. It also means considering how I can serve others just as Jesus gave his life to serve me. So let's look at the first of these case studies, starting in verse 2. This is a case of head coverings, head coverings. Paul says, verse 2, Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. Now for some people, when they hear the word tradition, they like freak out, right? Oh, traditions, those are bad. That's a T word. We don't, we don't like traditions in their mind. It brings to mind the kind of man-made stuff that people have tacked on to Christianity that God never intended. But here's what you need to know here, that when Paul talks about the traditions that he handed down to the church in Corinth, what he's talking about is the teachings and practices of the apostles which they received from Jesus. In other words, what he's saying is you are faithfully following the Christian faith. And and I'm glad. So even though the Corinthians, though, even though they were faithfully following the Christian faith, in some of the things they were doing, they were getting a little bit weird, right? And that's what Paul's going to talk to him about. He begins to address the situation in verse 3 where he says, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Now, why does Paul say this? Like, why is, why is he even bringing this up? He, he explains why, starting in verse 4. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, which he just told us is Christ, right? Verse 5, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. So that's her husband. Since it is the same as if her head were shaven, for if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. Now, what is this, right? Like, this is the kind of stuff that people, like, read, and they're like, see, I told you the Bible was weird, right? Listen, 
to understand what this passage is talking about. You need to understand that we're 2,000 years separated from the culture in which this was written, and you need to understand that for them, wearing a head covering meant something in their culture that it does not mean for us in our culture. So does having a shaved head for women. It meant something in their culture, which it doesn't mean for our culture. That's why this seems odd to us. But listen, we, we can make sense of this. The kind of head covering that's being talked about here was like a scarf that a woman would wrap around her head to cover her hair, very similar to the way that Muslim women today cover their heads with scarves when they go out in public. Now, in the Greek and Roman culture of that time, married women wore these head coverings, and these head coverings were the outward sign of the fact that you were married. That's what it meant, that you're married. In our culture, we wear wedding rings, right? So if you see a woman or a man wearing a wedding ring, that is a sign or a symbol outwardly that they are married, that they're taken, that they're not available. Well, in that culture, married women wore headscarves to indicate the same thing rather than wearing rings. This practice, by the way, is still done in many places in Eastern Europe to this day. But in the Corinthian church, some of the married women Here's what they had done. They had stopped wearing their head covering. At least they stopped wearing them in church, but they might have stopped wearing them altogether, even in public. But also, here's the other thing. There were also some men who were covering their heads during church services. Now, the reason that was an issue is because in the Roman Empire, historians tell us that during pagan rituals, men would put their togas over their heads. They would cover their heads with their togas. So here's the deal. Many of the Corinthian Christians, before they had come to faith in Jesus, they had been pagans. And so they had carried this practice over with them. This is what you do when you worship God. When you worship pagan gods, or now they're worshiping the Lord Jesus. And so they covered their heads. And Paul says, no, no, no. We don't want to do that during worship because that comes from paganism. It kind of communicates the wrong thing. So there's two things going on here, and they are both cultural issues of that time. These men were dishonoring God by covering their heads and therefore worshiping in a way that resembled pagan worship. But the married women who were not covering their heads with headscarves in church, they were disrespecting their husbands because it would be essentially like not wearing your wedding ring. So, so just imagine, if someone walked in off the street into one of these church services there in Corinth, what would they see? Well, they see men dressed like pagans doing religious rituals, and they'd see married women who weren't wearing headscarves to indicate that they were married. And the first of those would be confusing. Is this just the same thing as, as like pagan rituals? And the second of those things would have been considered scandalous. Married women not wearing headscarves in public? Like, like, what kind of weird group is this? Like, what kind of stuff are they doing with each other? Like, the Apostle Paul, in other words, he isn't just worried that the wives are hurting their husbands' feelings. What he's concerned about is also the public witness of the church in the community. He's worried that people will come in, outsiders will see what they're doing, and what they're communicating in that culture would be something that was confusing or send the wrong message to people for whom these were the cultural practices of that day. So Paul is basically saying this. You guys are so focused on indulging yourselves and doing whatever you want to do that you aren't even thinking about how your actions might affect other people. That's the big issue here. Now, why were these women taking off their headscarves? Why were they taking off their headscarves? It's because of, of something that Christianity did that was actually very good. And that's this. 
that Christianity at this time was incredibly liberating to women. You know, sometimes people try to say that Christianity is repressive to women, but historically, you need to understand that Christianity has elevated the status of women everywhere it went. Christianity has always affirmed the value, dignity, and honor of women in the face of cultures that considered women and treated women as second-class citizens. In the Roman Empire, for example, a woman's testimony was not accepted in court because women were not considered trustworthy. There are historical documents from the Roman Empire which record that in, the, in Rome, there was a, a way disproportionate number of men than of women in the empire. And, and the reason for that is this. They didn't have abortion in the way that we do today, but what they did, therefore, was a practice that's called infanticide, which means that after a baby is born, they would leave those infants out to die if they didn't want the baby. So they wouldn't have to raise them. It costs money, food, etc., work to raise kids. And they say, well, I can only raise so many. I'm going to make sure that I raise the ones I want and essentially dispose of the ones that I don't want. And so here's what would happen. If you were in Rome and you had a baby and that baby was born with birth defects or disabilities, or if they were a girl, oftentimes what they would do is they would take these babies newborn babies, and they would take them out to the edge of town, which is where people would dump their trash, right? There wasn't like a, a dump. You just dump your trash on the edge of town, and they would leave the babies on the trash heaps to be killed by exposure to the elements and by wild animals. You know, it wouldn't take very long. Another thing that happened because of this practice is that slave traders would come along, and they would actually collect these babies, particularly baby girls, so that they could you know, raise them up a little bit bigger and then start to make a profit off of them. It's a very terrible, horrible, brutal practice. But here's what the early Christians did. The early Christians became famous. There are actually documents written by Roman officials that say these Christians, they not only raise their own children, they're also raising our children. Not only are they feeding their own poor, they're also feeding our poor to our shame is what Pliny, the, the, the writer, says about the Christians in that day. Because he says, here's what the Christians would do. They would go out to the trash heaps and they would rescue these babies that had been abandoned because they were disabled or because they were girls most often girls, and they would adopt them and raise them as their own because that is what God has done for us in Christ, isn't it? That is what he has done. Even though you were not his child, he pursued you. He came for you. He rescued you from the trash heap, and he adopted you into his family. He made you his child. He seated you at his table, and he gave you a new name, a new identity, a new future, and an inheritance to boot. And early Christians said, if that is what God has done for me, then to imitate Christ is to love others in the ways that God has loved me, so I will do that for them. You see, for Christians, boys and girls had equal value. That wasn't the case in, amongst other cultures. And the reason boys and girls had equal value is because both male and female, the Bible says, are created in the image of God. Men and women are co-heirs with Christ of eternal life. And this is why Paul says this absolutely revolutionary statement in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, where he says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. In other words, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. In Christ, every person is equal in their value and dignity and in their identity as a child of God. 
And so some of the married women in the Corinthian church, they heard this wonderful, great principle. But then they took it, and here's what they did with it. They said, since my husband and I are now equals in Christ, well, I don't need to wear this headscarf anymore because I'm no longer defined by being somebody else's wife, right? I'm defined, I'm my own person. I'm not, I'm not defined by being somebody else's wife. I'm my own person in Christ. So some of the married women in Corinth, they began ditching their headscarves. And some of these women in the church, they were praying and prophesying, and yet they were not wearing this outward sign of being a married woman. And Paul's telling them here, he's saying this, guys, what you're doing, this is not good. You are dishonoring your husband. Even though you and your husband are equal in Christ, there is still an order that God has established. And by dishonoring your husband, by, by taking off this symbol that means that you're married to him, you're dishonoring the order that God created and established for the family. The way to honor God, Paul's saying, is to honor your husband. In this case, that means wearing a headscarf in public since that's a symbol that you're, that you're married in that culture. Paul says this, if a woman refuses to wear a head covering in public, she might as well shave her head or cut her hair really short, which Paul says in verse 6 is a disgrace. Whoa, what is that all about, right? Again, this is a historical and cultural thing that Paul's talking about here. Different historians tell us a few different things, but none of them are good, right? Some historians say in that society, for a woman to have a shaved head indicated that she was a prostitute. Others say that one of the punishments that would take place for a woman who committed a crime and was convicted of a crime is that they would cut her hair off as a way of kind of publicly shaming her, right? So when she went out in public, people would see, oh, look, she must have committed a crime because her hair is all cut off. So what Paul's saying is, look, if you don't want to wear a head covering, why don't you just go all the way and shave your head? But of course, you would never do that, is what he's implying, because it's a sign of disgrace. And yet here you are, disgracing your husband by refusing to wear the symbol of being married to him. So not wearing a head covering communicated to people in that society that you were not married. So that's kind of sending the wrong message, isn't it, in the church? So understand, these instructions were not aimed at all women in general. It's specifically speaking to those who were married, which is why the ESV translation here in chapter 11 is so good, um, because it, it makes that clear. Paul goes on to say in verse 7 that even though men and women are equal in Christ, God has still designed an order in which husbands are called to lead their families. Now, leading your family, that doesn't mean that husbands should not listen to what their wife has to say, right? Or, or just kind of domineer them. Uh, what it does mean is that he is to be the one who is taking the lead. And do you know what leadership in the home looks like? I like to say it like this. Leadership sounds like let's, right? Leadership sounds like let's, doesn't it? It, it? Leadership in the home looks like this. It sounds like this. Let's pray. Let's go to church, right? This is a husband initiating, saying, honey, let's go to church. Let's help those people. Let's read with the kids. Let's do something together as a family, right? It's a, it it's, looks like let's. Husbands to lead means to initiate. And wives, what 1 Corinthians 11 says is that when you honor your husband, you are honoring God because you're honoring the order that God established for the marriage relationship. You, you can honor your husband with your words. You can honor your husband with your actions. And husbands, 
The way that you honor your wives is by leading them in a way that honors God. Leading them in a way that honors God. That's how you honor them. That means that you lead in a way that is godly. It means that you lead according to the will of God and according to the heart of Jesus, which means that you lead with humility, you lead with gentleness, you're quick to forgive, and you lead them back to Jesus all the time. You know, our primary message, in other words, is not, wives, you need to take a step back. That's not it. Our primary message is, husbands, you need to take a step up. Husbands, you need to step up and lead well. Remember, just as Jesus was equal to the Father, yet he submitted to the Father, in Christian marriage, two equals in Christ come together to reflect who God is and how he loves. The husband honors the wife by, by leading in a way that honors God, and the wife honors the husband by following his lead and showing respect. So whereas head coverings were something specific to that culture, the bigger issue here is one that is not cultural. The bigger issue here is that this is part of God's design all the way back from the creation. In other words, the head coverings, right, that was cultural. But this idea of leadership in the home that God has established, that's not like a cultural thing that changes with culture. That's a design that goes all the way back to creation, Paul says, in verses 7 through 9. Nevertheless, Paul says in verse 11, he says, In the Lord... Woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman, for as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. So what Paul's saying is, this is not about male superiority. Ultimately, there's an interconnectedness and interdependence between men and women. What this is about is honoring God's design for marriage and for the family by husbands leading and wives honoring their husbands. Now, one thing before we move on, I want you to notice in verse 5 that Paul talks about women praying and prophesying in the church. Praying and prophesying in the church. And Paul actually encourages them to do this. He only says that married women should wear headscarves when they do it as a way of honoring their husbands by signifying that they're married. Now, we're going to talk more about the roles of men and women when it comes to church leadership when we get to chapter 14. But I want you to just take a note of this here, that this is an example of how women were involved in church services by praying and sharing words of prophecy. Okay, that brings us to the second and final part of our sentence for today, which is this. Self-centeredness leads us to dishonor God and others, but following in the way of Jesus leads us to honor God and consider the needs of others instead of merely indulging ourselves. And the second case study here is a case study about communion. Paul says, starting in verse 17, he says, when you come together, it's not good. He says in 18, there are divisions among you. And he says in verse 20, when you come together to take the Lord's Supper, here's what happens. One goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry. Another gets drunk. In the early church, right, they didn't take communion in the uh, prepackaged, you know, plastic containers that we do where, you, you know, you struggle for half the service to get the wafer out, Right. In the early churches, they didn't do communion that way. In the early church, it would probably look more like this. They would have big tables set up with large amounts of bread and then large pitchers of wine. And people would come up to the table if they weren't sitting around it. But in larger gatherings, you'd come up to the table, you'd break off some bread, and you'd take some of the wine, and you would celebrate communion. 
Now, so what's happening in the Corinthian church is that some people were coming, right? Like when you go to the church potluck and there's like that, the first guy who goes and he's like piling it on, right? That's kind of what they're doing. They're just breaking off a lot of bread, like a, an excessive amount of bread. Like they're kind of pigging out on this communion bread. And then they were drinking a lot of wine during communion to the point where there wasn't any left over for others. And they were getting drunk, right? Like they're getting their buzz on at church, at communion. And Paul's saying, guys, this is wrong. Like this is selfish and is dishonoring God that you act in this way. As something that's supposed to be sacred and special at the Lord's table. Now listen, like we said in our sentence today, self-centeredness leads us to dishonor God and others. But following in the way of Jesus leads us to honor God and consider the needs of others instead of merely indulging ourselves. Paul is basically saying this in verse 22. He's like, what are you guys thinking? Don't you have your own houses to go and eat and drink? Why do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? And then starting in verse 23, he reminds them what communion is about. He says, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So when we take communion, we aren't only celebrating what Jesus did for us in his death. We are also celebrating and saying in faith, we know that Jesus is coming again. And because he's coming again, one day he will take us home to eat and drink with him at his table in his kingdom forever. It's the promise of the coming kingdom. He says there for verse 27, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. What he's talking about here in the context, remember, is those who would eat in a way that was irreverent, irreverent. He says, let a person examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So as we take communion, as we celebrate the forgiveness of our sins that we have in Jesus, we ought to also consider if there are any ongoing sins in our lives that we need to repent of as we're in that place of receiving forgiveness. That's a good time for us to repent of any ongoing sins. We also want to consider when we take communion, as we thank God for forgiving us, we also want to forgive others who have sinned against us. Maybe you're holding on to bitterness or forgiveness towards somebody else. You have to let that go when it comes time to take the Lord's table. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now in the next chapter, in chapter 12, Paul is going to talk about how the church functions as the body of Christ in the world. So when Paul says anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, he could be saying anyone who takes communion irreverently without recognizing what it represents, or it could be saying anyone who takes communion without considering others in the body of Christ brings God's corrective discipline into their life, invites that into their lives. But he says in verse 31, but if you would discipline yourselves, then you would have no need of God's corrective discipline in your lives. And he concludes this section in verse 33 by saying, So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone's hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About other things, I will give directions when I come. 
Listen, in a world that encourages us to put ourselves first, to imitate Jesus is a radically different way to live. To imitate Jesus is a radically different way to live. Jesus put it this way. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The message of the gospel is that God came to us in the person of Jesus. He left the comforts of heaven in order to do for you what you could not do for yourself. He came and rescued you from the trash heap and adopted you as his own child. And on that night, right after Jesus ate the bread and drank the cup with his disciples, rather than running away and disappearing into the night in order to save himself, Jesus went to the garden where he knew that a mob was going to come and arrest him and take him to be crucified. And he went there. In other words, rather than saving himself, Jesus chose to save you. Do you know that? Rather than saving himself, Jesus chose to save you. Jesus, the Son, honored God the Father to meet our greatest need by giving his life for you on the cross so you could be forgiven, redeemed, and have the hope of eternal life. The ultimate act of love, rather than self-centeredness, it was self-sacrifice for you. And because he has done that for you, if you have put your trust in him, not only can you have confidence in the face of anything that this life brings your way, but you know what else? It sets you free to live your life honoring God and serving others because you know that your best life is the one that is to come for all eternity because of what Jesus did for you. Friends, self-centeredness leads us to dishonor God and others. But following in the way of Jesus leads us to honor God and consider the needs of others instead of merely indulging ourselves. Please stand with me. You have been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Make sure to tap the subscribe button if you would like to have new messages delivered to your device every week when they are released. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support our ministry, you can do so by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or by giving a donation to our church on our website at whitefieldschurch.com.